Welcome back to another episode of Revolution Recap. I'm Sean Donahue, joined today by Seth Maycomer. Uh, the Revolution suffered a one nothing loss in Columbus on Saturday night, gave up a set-piece goal to Josh Williams off a Federico Higuain uh, set-piece in somewhat controversial fashion as there was some questions of whether or not the, the goal was offsides. Uh, Brad Friedel certainly thought it was. Um, but the Revolution coming off of a 2-1 to victory uh, last weekend, we're hoping to build upon that and, and get something out of this game, um, and hopefully get their second victory of the season. Uh, they, you know, had a decent spell of possession for at times in this game, but really couldn't turn into many chances. But the the big story, at least for me, um, besides the the goal potentially being offsides, was Michael Mancian's red card. Um, and we got some listener questions, and and that was the one I wanted to start with. We'll get, dive into the game more and, and do more listener questions later. But the one that I really wanted to start with was um, the question from Adam McLean, who asked, "How about that terrible tackle from Mancian? What was he thinking? Not what we should expect from the captain and highest paid defender in MLS." Seth, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, this is a guy who's a veteran, who's the captain, who played in Europe, who has uh, you would assume a good mentality uh, and knows knows how to avoid those mental mistakes. And for the second straight week, we say a mental mistake happened. I mean, last week he punches the ball inside the box, concedes a penalty. And uh, this week we see him kind of foolishly go into that tackle. Uh, it, it was, it's a harsh tackle. I mean, it's, if it's not a second yellow, it's could have certainly have been a straight red. So I see no problem, uh, you know, sending him out early. Uh, he has to be smarter in those moments. Um, I do think that Friedel's system requires those center backs to press high and to to try to like uh neutralize that central threat we saw that last week that Anibaba in particular you know pushing high trying to make sure that um those attackers don't have much space and Anibaba actually last week got very anxious and had not nearly as bad of a tackle but had a pretty harsh tackle that people were like really dude like calm down at your first start back take it easy a little bit so I do think that these center backs are being told to play very aggressively in that way. That said, you still have to keep your head about you. You can still put pressure on someone without doing that type of foolish tackle. So for me, just, just really foolish. I mean, like everyone's going to, you know, regardless of, of – it puts a little bit more pressure on you when you are the captain and when you are the highest paid defender um, according to, to, to what we can see in MLS. But also just, just being a, an experienced guy, you shouldn't be making that type of tackle. You should have more sense about you. So uh, those kind of things on your resume just highlights it even more and puts it even more of a, a negative on Mancian. And I thought both of those yellow cards that he got were, you know, completely unnecessary. They were in positions of the field with you know, other guys in support um, where it wasn't like a, a completely tactical, we need to make this foul to prevent a goal. Um, and honestly, the, the first yellow card he got, uh, if you get the wrong referee, I think could have been a red card too. Uh, so I don't think he can really have any complaints. But I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but when I saw those two plays, I didn't think either of them were in positions of the field where even, you know, that type of foul was anything close to necessary. Yeah, again, it's about keeping your sense about you. And to go back to what I said, I, I do think it's a little bit of the Friedel system of like, hey, we are going to aggressively high press. And I think the first few games of the season, we weren't seeing that same type of men, uh, mentality and the same type of play that we saw last year. They weren't quite as aggressive with the press. The press was definitely still a thing, but they weren't all over their opponent like we saw last year. And I think those last two games, the press has been all over the field. I mean, that's why last week you saw, you know, um, Jones and by in those wide positions because they might not be the most technical players, but they can run for days. I mean, they're they're quick, they're anxious, um, they are players that are ready to impress. So they're going to put in effort for 80 minutes, 90 minutes, however long they play. And this week we saw that uh, Castillo, you know, changes. So therefore, we need a speedy guy to play opposite of Jones. So that's why they move Bunbury there because Bunbury is a guy again is going to run for 90 minutes, going to run himself into the ground. Uh, so we saw the press, you know, much more aggressive. And a part of that, again, is those center backs. So center backs say, okay, when Iguain has the ball, we have to be on him immediately, okay? When some of those players that are very, very dangerous in the middle, we're going to be on them absolutely immediately to make sure that they're not seeing that forward field. But as I mentioned before, you can do that without, you know, leaving your feet. You can do that without, you know, uh, clobbering a player. Uh, so you just kind of have some sense about, you know, it, yes, we are going to press. Yes, we are going to try to limit their space, but we're going to be smart about uh, when we get there, not going in too hard. 
Yeah, and you, you talked earlier about those you know mental mistakes from Michael Mancia, and of course last week it was the penalty kick where his hand was really in a position where an experienced defender like him shouldn't have his hand in the box. Um, and you know there's been other games this season too where he's you know been a little flat-footed on a cross that he could have stepped out and it's led to a goal. You know, at, at what point do you question whether this guy is you know the right person to be starting every week um, and be the the right person to be the the Revolution's captain? Yeah, my problem is is that for two consecutive seasons, we've seen the Revs go out and uh, bring in a midseason signing, a defender who they overpay. Okay, Claude Dielna came in and they overpaid him, and he was underwhelming. Okay, uh, Mancian comes in, a huge contract, overpay him, he's underwhelming. So it's just you know, it's I'd rather see them take time and try to identify that right player. Um, and go like I know I understand what like fans want that midseason signing. They knew they needed like help on the defensive end. They knew they needed help on the back end. So they end up signing those center backs. But you know, you look one year later, everyone kind of says no. Like Dion not working. No, uh, Mancian's not working. Uh, and now you have this situation where do you keep this guy or not? I mean, this is a guy that you've named your captain. Are you going to for the second straight year? You know, say, hey, you're my captain, but now you're on the bench. Now you're not in the 18. Like, what situation do you kind of find yourself in? And I'm not sure that Mancian would find himself, like, not being in the 18 right now. It probably had to do with, you know, his locker room presence, which I don't know much about. Um, but and and I, the I, fact that there's no other defenders on the roster that can play center back. <laughs> true, very true. But, like, it just, it's just a bad look for the Revolution who, who keep overpaying for these players that don't uh, produce. And I'd rather them, you know, take the time and really try to identify. Like, even, like, right now, they probably need a center back. We know they probably need some depth, either as a starter or as a, a depth piece. Instead of going out and signing someone uh, in the summer, just start, be scouting right now. Start, you know, thinking about your connections and then thinking about next year who that player might be. Yeah, and I think Andy Bob has been, you know, well uh, performed well above the, the level of expectations for him, and I think he's been the best center back. We talked about this last week. I think he's been the best center back on the team. Um, but you know, not to to bash on Andy Baba, but if, if he's the best center back on the team, I don't think you have a team that's an MLS cont- Cup contender. Is that unfair to say? No, I agree with that. I mean, it, it's. I mean, again, Andy is a great player, great player to have in the locker room, uh, nice guy. I mean, any team would be happy to have Andy Baba on their roster. But for this, you know, for the second straight year, he seems to be putting himself into the starting conversation, and that's probably not where he should be. He's probably that third piece who who gives you the, the start uh, here or there, um, but doesn't necessarily, you know, show up week in and week out. That said, I mean, this guy's, you know, has a goal already. He's, you know, had that long-range shot last he's, night. He's their I mean, second-best offensive weapon after heel right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm saying maybe that uh, we'll see him, you know, become a forward later on. Maybe he'll be like a Shawnee Joseph that later in his career, that's where he ends up playing. <laughs> so we spent a lot of time on Mancian. What was your biggest takeaway from this game, other than, than Mancian perhaps uh, needing to get a bit smarter in games like this? Yeah, I mean, I think that I'm stealing what you said, and I kind of kept the tradition going. Like last week, you gave that really great stat about um, that no Revolution forward has recorded a shot on goal, and I kept that going last night by saying that's still the case. I mean, that's pretty crazy to think about that. We're six games into this. 18% uh, of the season. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a great little stat there. Yeah, six games into the season right now, and no one has recorded a shot on goal. That's, That's not that high of a bar to hit. You know, like, I'm not saying, like, fine, if, if no Revolution uh, striker has scored yet, that's something. But not even a shot on goal, that's very, very concerning for me. Um, and, and last week I was oh, kind of okay with it, you know, not having a, a shot on goal because I thought Agudelo and uh, Bunbury were doing well. I thought they put themselves in decent positions. I mean, Agudelo probably could add a goal or two. Um, then you had Teal Bunbury you know, scuffing his shot, but he got a little good, nice little movement to get in behind the back line. That was the type of stuff you want to see from your forwards. So I thought they were dangerous last week. This week, not so much. We saw, uh, you know, uh, Juan Fernando Casado start up top with Juan, uh, Juan Agudelo. I didn't think either of them were that dangerous. Um, you know, they, to me, they're a little too similar in the fact that like, no one's going to really get behind that back line quite as much as Teal Bunbury. I can understand putting Teal Bunbury in the uh, on the wing because you want his speed, you want his effort. There's one point where uh, Bob Berry does a really great job of tracking back and and you know preventing um, a counterattack from the the Columbus Crew. Uh, but you know, like you miss a little something with him not up top. As a whole, though, you're probably missing something as a as a Revolution with those guys that just strikers because no one's really putting fear into uh, their opponents right now. 
Yeah, and, and what do you think of Juan Caicedo? Obviously, his first start. It seems like the the broadcast crew likes to hammer home the fact that he has an unorthodox running style, which I find a little bit interesting. That that's something that you know both both Mariner, Palmer, and Brad Feldman have have focused on a bit in the broadcast. Um, I haven't been particularly impressed with him so far. He he does seem a bit slow. Uh, this game, he you know he's good in the area. Won four year old duels. Um, but he had two shots, both off target, including you know a header that maybe he should have done better with. Um, wh- what is your thoughts on on what we've seen from obviously this this being his first start and getting sixty eight minutes? Yeah, this week we heard that he had a herky jerky style to him, I believe, from Feldman. Yeah, so I think that's correct. Though. And Mariner said something too at the beginning of the game that I forget about his running style. I might have called it awkward or, or something along those lines. Yeah, I think that the more we see of. Uh, the new Casado, the, the more uh, phrases we're going to get out of the commentator. So I'm all for that. Um, I, for me, for what I've seen of him in the revolution, as well as what I saw from him in highlights, he's that fox in the box type of striker that he's there to, to put in the, put away the tap ins. He's there to kind of just kind of do that dirty work inside the box. And the revs aren't really getting those crosses for him, getting that service for him. So it's again, almost feels like a mismatch of his style. I mean, uh, maybe the idea was we're going to have Castillo and, and Castillo unavailable today, but Castillo is going to be the one that's going to send those crosses in, and Castillo is going to be the player that are going to clean those up. But I haven't been overly impressed with what I saw from uh, Castillo so far. His best moment in this game came uh, in the second half, I believe, and Carlos Hill, who's, who's you know excellent week in and week out, and we're seeing him more and more find those seams. That was a little bit of a criticism I had early in the season that he was, you know. Playing so high up that he was wasn't really allowed to to find the seams and orchestrate the game as much as I like. Now that he's playing a little bit further back, he can see more of the field and he can jump into those spaces, then play that next ball. So uh, in this play, he you know Carlos Hill comes from deep, gets the ball on his foot, and then plays a through ball that gets to Casado, and Casado kind of falls inside the box. To me, not a penalty. When you look back. Uh, definitely looks like Zach Steffen got the ball first before he got Casado. Uh, but Casado was asking, as any you know, good striker would, asking for the penalty call. Um, so, to, to, I mean, when that's your best moment of the game, when that's the most memorable moment of the game, it's not necessarily that great of a day. I don't have the stats in front of me, but I don't think he had that many touches on the ball. Um, yeah, I would yeah, rather just, see, just 19. Yeah, 19. So not many touches. And, and as a striker, you don't necessarily always need – you know, touches on the ball, like you just need that one to put it in the back of the net. But I never really felt like he or even the Revolution had many dangerous opportunities that were going to change the game. I never really thought, yes, I thought the effort was really good. I thought this is a game that the Revolution could have gotten a point out of. I mean, they played well enough to get a point out of the game. Um, crew definitely had way more opportunities uh, overall. They could have, crew definitely could have gotten more goals. But the effort was there, but they offensively never really seemed like they were going to get a goal, and they never really seemed like there's there much an opportunity of getting three points. Yeah, and and you kind of touched upon my takeaway, which which is essentially that you know effort is not effort alone is not enough to get the Revolution to the playoffs. Um, and I think we saw it in this game. Uh, you know, Dewan Jones got the start again. Um, you know, maybe I'm being harsh, but I thought you know last week in his in his first game he had a first half that he looked shaky and, and a little bit. Um, like he was adjusting to the pace of play of MLS. In the second half, he came into his game a bit more and played a lot better. Um, and this game, I thought it looked more like his first half again than it did in the second half. Um, you know, I, I, I think that he's a really talented player and can offer a lot to this team, but he's still very raw. In this game, he completed 52.9% of his passing. Um, you know, that's just not good enough for a professional soccer player. In a game like this, overall this season, he's completed 52% of his passes. You know, when, when 50% of your passes essentially are resulting in turnovers, um, that's a hard thing to overcome uh, so I you know I didn't think Jones was good enough in this game and I you know when I saw this lineup and I saw the lineup week before to me this is kind of Friedel's all effort lineup you know you're going to get a lot of effort from Dewan Jones you know you're going to get a lot of effort from Brandon By, Andrew Farrell you know Teal Bunbury those are all guys you can count on to give you a good week good work rate every week um, and of course Carly's Gill who you know in addition to effort combines a lot of you know adds a lot of skills to this team um, but you know Jones and By are guys that maybe don't have the the level of of uh, you know defined our talent at this point in their career to to really make a difference in a game like this, um, and you know I, I just don't think the Revolution can keep playing this lineup and, and win and win enough games, which is you know what I said last week as well. Um, you know on the on the flip side, I thought Pania came in and you know at least for those you know three minutes until the the red card happened where he was out there, I thought he was the best player on the field and really added a spark to this team, um, which is you know certainly a positive. He had one of the Revolution's only two shots on target. He created a chance. He had. Um, you know, two shots himself. Uh, I thought he had a really good game, all things considered 
know, difficult to, to play after they were down a man, but he really provided a spark in this game and I think has earned himself more minutes going forward. Um, and, you know, Pania actually had more touches than Jones did, even though he only played half as much, half as much time. Um, what did you think of, of those two guys' performance? And, you know, do you think Jones maybe, again, it's harsh because he's a rookie, but, you know, maybe just isn't ready yet to be an every week starter? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that, you know, you play Jones because he's energy um, and he's doing that. He's working hard. He has some decent moments every now and then. Like you can see there is some quality there, but there's a lot of pressure. I mean, the game's faster. The game's more physical. Um, you know, you have to know what you're, where you're going to be passing. You have to have a plan before you receive that ball. And that can be difficult sometimes for Jones. And you mentioned it with a passing percentage. Well, and they're uh, not they're not long like passes that he's attempting that he's missing. These are short passes that he's you know off the mark on. And I mentioned last week that um, you know one of the, the the plays that led to a very dangerous chance last week was a you know pass to Aguadella where Aguadella was about three feet from him and he overhit it and hit it out of bounds and that led to you know a throw on that ended up being a good chance uh, for Minnesota. So they're, they're really not you know if you look at his passing chart, these passes he's not connecting on aren't necessarily difficult passes either. Yeah, and like you, I'm concerned about the long-term um, success rate of this strategy. I mean, we saw it last year. The Revolution come up with a high press. They do very, very well, and it kind of tampers off as the year goes on, partly because teams figure them out and partly because you start to exhaust the players on your team. And then especially as the, the results don't come in, if you start losing, you got to imagine if you're a player, you're like, really? Like, we're going to be working this hard in order to, to lose games? You know, so it, it's got to be difficult to to keep these players going 110% through the entire season, especially as summer comes, the heat starts to come in. Um, so there has to be really that plan B. And we, and we I thought we started to see the idea with the plan B, a little bit more possession style uh, early in the season. But to be fair, I don't think it was as successful as that high-press system because they weren't really finding those gaps. They weren't really, uh, you know, making things happen on that uh, attacking third. Um, so, yeah, I definitely agree that Pena looked good last night. Um, his energy level looked it looked higher, which is good, which is a good sign for the revolution because it had looked low early in the season. Um, that said, even in the early moments of the season, we're still seeing that Pena is one of the revolution's best attacking players. I mean, if you go back and look at a lot of those games, um, some of the revolution's best plays – if they weren't being produced by Carlos Hill, they were going through Christian Pena. So even though he might have had a really low effort, uh, energy level was low, he he wasn't playing his best soccer, he was still, you know, taking on people or, you know, uh, using space effectively or creating space by others by, you know, being that guy that the opponents have to focus in on. So, I mean, you got to get him on the field. Uh, he's going to be more dangerous then a Jones, then a buy, uh, and that's going to create more opportunities for other players. And he's creative. Like he, he knows how to find the back of the net. He's been a professional for quite a while. So if you, you got to coach him up, you got to make sure he gets that energy level. You got to make sure he has that commitment. Um, because when he has all those things, he's a very, very good player. Yeah, I'm a hundred percent with you. If if you can't get a guy like Christian Pena motivated, you know, there, there's bigger issues there um, because I think this team needs Pena on the field to to be successful long term. You know, Carlos Heel doing a great job creating, but he can't do it all himself. And if teams can focus in on him, um, which I think they can to a certain extent, when um, you know when Pena is not on the field, you know, that's eventually that's going to hinder his ability to create chances. So I, I'm a hundred percent with you on that. This team needs to find a way to to get Pena out there. Um, and get him motivated and, and find and find a way for him to contribute to this team. Um, you know, like I was saying, the, the guys that are out there, I don't think it takes much effort to to motivate a rookie that's fighting for playing time. And you know, a lot of what I look at with this team is, you know, feel finding the guys that, uh, you know, are, are going to be naturally motivated because they're fighting for minutes. Um, and, you know, that's all well and good. And I think it got the job done against Minnesota and exactly what the team needed then. Um, you know, I give Friel credit for that. But, if, you know, I just don't think he can stick with that all season. The other thing that kind of shocked me in this game was that, you you had Diego Fagundes, who was, you know, again, one of the Rev's best creative guys last season um, on the bench with the team needing a goal. And in the 80th minute, they bring on Buchanan instead of Fagundes. Did that sub surprise you at all? Because it, it certainly shocked me that, you know, you have an experienced guy like Fagundes and you bring on, you know, more of a raw guy in Buchanan um, in that situation. Honestly, not that much just because, you know, these last few weeks, the Revs have been really pushing hard on that high press system. And you got a guy that, like Buchanan who totally is energy, who totally is about, you know, trying to impress the coach. And he's going to go out there and, and be 110% out there. Um, he actually creates like a decent little moment towards the end of the game where he, he gets to the end line and cuts it back. Um, so I, I, I'm honestly not that surprised because 
Friedel right now is all about who's going to put in that effort the most. And Fagunas is definitely a more creative player. He's definitely someone who's probably more likely to get a goal for you. But he's also someone who doesn't always put that 110% effort, especially tracking back, especially on that defensive end of the ball. So it didn't surprise me that much. Uh, beginning of the season, I mentioned that this is a really interesting year for Fagundes because he was probably not going to be the number 10 this year. Um, so where does that leave him? Is he going to play out wide where you know that Friedel wants effort, where Friedel wants that you know energy, where he's going up and down the field? Maybe, maybe not. Um, is he going to play up top? Maybe, but he's, you know, he's not necessarily the – where we've seen him have his most success throughout his career. So this is a really interesting year for Fagundes, and um, it, it is kind of – I definitely agree it was – a bit surprising to see him left on the bench, but it's all about the system. It's all about how how well are you going to fit into that system. And I think Friedel right now trusts a guy like Buchanan providing 10 minutes of absolute energy, of absolute sprinting up and down the field um, with his – what is it, like this wiggly wiggly jiggly or whatever that uh, Paul Mariner <laughs> Her- said. Herky-jerky. Uh, herky, yeah, I don't know. I can't remember what it said, but I remember when Buchanan uh, made his debut, uh, uh, Paul Mariner said something about uh, his moves. I believe that came actually came from the assistant coach Lapper, who, who said it, wiggly and they're jiggly. trying to figure out, yeah, wiggly jiggly or something like that. They're trying to figure out what that meant to the field. So honestly, I, I, I it, it was a little strange not to see Fagunes, a guy who's been around for so long, but because of the system and, and what the demands are, I wasn't totally uh, surprised to see Buchanan. So the, the other lineup note that I think is worth mentioning, uh, Gabriel Somi back in the 18 for the first time since, what, July of last year, June? I don't, it's been a while. <laughs> do, do you make anything of that, or is this just a pure desperation move? Because I think we the two of us were going through the, the roster before the game, and um, with all the injuries to De La Maya, Castillo, you know, Renix, um, all, all of those guys, I don't think, and you know, of course the loans of, of Harrowview and Brian Wright, I don't think there really was another option except you know either a goalkeeper or, or Firmino. So is, is Somi out of the doghouse, or is this just a, uh, you know, a, a desperation of no other option move? Yeah, I think it's a desperation move. There's no other real option there. I'd be very surprised if we see Gabriel Somi on the uh, field again for the Revolution. Um, he just he just hasn't been good as a left back. I don't think he's uh, creative enough to to be a left winger. Um, I think that like what else are you gonna do? Are you gonna you know especially with the lineup um, where you don't have many defensive options, you might as well put some sort of defensive option there just in case things go wrong. That said, things did go wrong. You have Michael Mancien who gets a red card. And instead of playing Gabriel Somi, we saw Farrell go uh, central. We saw uh, Luis Casado go back to right back. Uh, so it, he's definitely far down the depth chart. I don't expect to see him. I mean, like you mentioned, Firmino, do you put him on the bench? I mean, you could, but there's almost there's zero chance really of seeing Firmino uh, play the field. Um, Brad Knighton, you're, you're probably not going to waste it on another goalkeeper, especially one that you was your starter that you relegated out of the 18. So why would you you put Brad Knighton in the 18? So you kind of have to go with Gabriel Somi at that point. Um, I, I, my guess is that like you'd, you'd have to have two injuries on that back line before you saw Gabriel Somi uh, suit up and, and take the field for the revolution. Uh, but, you know, like, hey, I guess he, everyone knows he's alive and well right now. His family can stop worrying about where he is. Uh, may, maybe, you know, this, I, this like him appearing on the bench now will get like rumors started again over in uh, over in uh, Scandinavia. So maybe he'll like, end up uh, getting a transfer all because he, he made the 18 for the first time, I believe actually since August. Um, so, yeah, I don't expect him to, to do anything going forward. And, and you, you mentioned Cropper what you, in the, the goalkeeper situation. What do you think of Cropper's performance in this one? He didn't have a single save and had that kind of shaky moment. Uh, I think it was the 13th or 14th minute where uh, Iguain got behind him. He came off his line to try to stop it and just whiffed on the ball entirely. Obviously not too much to judge him on. I don't think he could have done really anything on that goal. But um, is, is this his spot still safe? I think so. I mean, like, on the goal um... – I think he, he he was trying to hedge his bet a little bit. You see him kind of jump a little bit towards the near post, thinking that that's where the, the ball was going to go that after the header. Um, and because of that, when it goes back post, there's not much he can do. I don't really blame him too much on that, that goal. Like you said, he had that kind of big moment where he has to decide, am I going to go or not? And we saw something similar last week where – if you're going to be a goalkeeper for the revolution, you have to be ready to get off your line. You have to be confident about that. And he talked about that during the far post podcast this past week um, where he said, all right, like I, I know that there's going to be some extra space between me and my back line. And I have to know, am I going to go or not? And if I'm going to go, I have to be 
you know, 100% committed to it, 100% ready to go and, and do my best to clear that ball and to neutralize any type of threat. Um, so, I mean, honestly, it's, 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 he could have done better on that play, but it's good that he recognizes his role and recognizes that he's going to have to stay tuned into the game and recognize those opportunities to try to make sure that, um, you know, those long balls over the top are being neutralized and not going to be a threat because we do know that uh, opposing teams like to use those. So I don't see any reason why you take him out of the, the starting lineup right now. Um, it's his spot to, to lose. I think that you need several bad weeks in a row. We saw that with Knighton. There was a couple bad weeks in a row before they, they switched. Last year, the same thing. Turner, Turner went through that slump. And they took a little while before they officially removed him. So I think they give those goalkeepers a little bit of leniency, which I'm totally okay with. I mean, goalkeepers, um, I think we went to Kevin Hartman years ago, that basically when you become a starter, you're not going to have all the answers all the time. And you need game experience. And that was kind of the reason why I was a little bummed last year when they took out Matt Turner. I didn't think necessarily um, Knighton or uh, Cropper were going to be that much of a step up. And you might as well – you know, take Matt Turner with his athleticism and let him ride out those rocky moments and hopefully become a better goalkeeper because of it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, right now, if Cropper's the guy, I say you kind of ride with Cropper. And, you know, unless things go really, really bad week after week, he's your starting keeper. Yeah, I, I'm with you. And I'm still of the opinion that Matt Turner has the highest upside of any of the keepers on the Revolution roster. I think there was, you know, obviously a lot of expectations for Cody Cropper with his, his pedigree. Um, but I feel like we've seen enough of him. and We've you know certainly seen enough of Knighton to to kind of know what their ceiling is. Um, where, where Matt Turner, when he was at his best last year, uh, you know, I, I still think that the upside there is higher than any of these guys. Um, but consistency wasn't there last year and obviously wasn't there in preseason form. So I'll be interested to see if, you know, he gets a chance this time, this, at some point this season. But to me, he's you know still the most exciting goalkeeper option um, for the revolution. Was there anything else in this game you wanted to touch on before we jumped into to listener questions and um, some comments from Carly's Guild this midweek? Uh, I just think it's important to recognize that, yeah, it's a 1-0 result, um, you know, and and that's kind of a close result on paper, but there, and I think the Revolution could have gotten a 0-0 tie, but there's also other moments where Columbus were threatening, and then the Revolution had to do a little, you know, last-ditch uh, defending to make sure the game, you know, stayed the way it was. So, uh, Mancy had actually had a nice little stop early in the game that could have ended up as a goal. You saw a goal line clearance off of a uh, Iguain yeah. corner Caldwell kick by again. Scott Caldwell. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think that it's it's one of those games where if it was 0-0, I would have been, okay, yeah, fair enough. Like that's that's probably a, a decent result uh, considering what happened in this game. Uh, but I think this game could have easily blown open and we could have seen it, you know, 2-0 uh, or maybe even 3-0 for Columbus crew. Versus, I didn't really think we were going to see much scored by the Revolution. I do also think that we should mention uh, the the goal that was scored. Did you think it was offside or not? So, it, freezing frame down to the point where Iguain kicks the ball. Um, it looks to me like he's slightly offside. But with that said, I haven't seen that at a straight angle. There's another Revolution player further back in the box that I think, um, you know, he, I think he's still offside despite that. But I, if I, you know, without seeing it from a straight angle, without seeing the the, the geometry that that some guys do to to prove whether or not a guy's offside, you know, I can't say for a hundred percent certain. If I were to guess, I'd say yes, it was offside. Um, but you know, unless there was another angle, um, I can't blame them for you know not going to VAR and, and saying it was offside because I you know I can't say for certain based on what I did see. Um, other than it, you know, it looks like his his shoulder was slightly offside. What do you think? Yeah. So. You know, I really kind of obviously we talked about it during the game and we saw that the commentators were talking about uh, that. And it became a bigger talking point after the game when Brad Friedel talked about VAR and, and took a little shot at the uh, VAR um, who was like watching the screen, who was Grajeda, saying that he's had issues with him before and that he's not really sure, you know, has some questions about VAR and they've been on the wrong side of some, some VAR decisions. Uh, for me, like when we're, Every screenshot that I've seen, it does look like his shoulder is offside, but it's not a direct, clear angle to know for sure if he's offside. Um, and if he is offside, it just seems like it's ever so slight that he's offside. Um, so I know that we talked to Jake Cantonese, the, the the New England referee expert, and he said that it being that close, he's not sure if he'd be willing to you know say it's definitely offside. So unless there is a better angle – I'm okay with the the call standing that you're going to allow the goal um, because it's just hard to tell from the angles that we've seen. So maybe there's an angle we haven't seen um, that that definitely 
commits that he's offside. But when you think about that idea of clear and obvious error, I'm not sure if it's clear and obvious. I'm not sure if it's 100% clear that he's offside. So therefore, uh, that's a tough call for the VAR and certainly the, uh, the sideline referee to make. And and him being, you know, three inches offside doesn't negate the fact that it was bad marking from the Revolution, who again, you know, let uh, one of the biggest targets on the crew get a wide open header in the box with a, a, a Federico Higuain uh, set piece, right? That was, it was terrible marking. Yeah, and there's a lot that you can take away from the play. And uh, Friedel mentioned that, you know, right before the play, you have Waylon Francis and Teal Bunbury battling it out. Uh, it looks like Waylon Francis commits a file on Teal Bunbury, but the referee lets it go. Bunbury then comes and, and you know, knocks over uh, Waylon Francis. And that's the, where you actually end up having the free kick. So Friedel, I was actually talking about, hey, that if that if the second one is a – a foul, which he doesn't argue with. He says, you know what? I'm fine with that being a foul. I'm fine with the, the Teal Bunbury tackle on uh, Waylon Francis being a foul. Then the first one should be too. So, you know, he, he was saying that we shouldn't even be talking about that free kick. Um, but like you said, from there, you have to defend. You know, you, you, you put the crew in a position where you have a guy that you know can hit a good cross. You know he can put the ball exactly where he wants it. So you need to make sure you find those targets and immediately deal with it. And, and later on, soon afterwards, we saw a corner kick, like I mentioned. And again, poor marking leads to Scott Caldwell having to make that last-ditch effort. So you know, calls are not going to go your way in a game. We, it doesn't matter what level. I mean, you, you play rec soccer. We've Everyone has bad referees. You just live with the referees that you have. And we, Rex Soccer, we don't even have VAR. You know? so, so in this situation, you know you have to defend. You know you have to get behind the ball. You know you have to make sure you have your marks. Uh, so, yeah, I, mean, I, I agree with you in the sense that you, you, you deal with the situation how you deal with it. You, calls aren't always going to go your way. And you mentioned those set pieces. The Revolution had more corner kicks than the crew. They won more fouls than the crew. Um, and I thought the Revolution had some dangerous set piece positions, but you know none of their set pieces really looked that dangerous in this game. And I don't think it was necessarily bad service, but guys just didn't get open. Um, and that was really the the big difference in what led to the crew winning this. Uh, you know, uh, the Revolution for the amount of corner kicks, six for the amount of you know fouls that they had won. Um, I thought they needed to do better with those set pieces. And I think in general this season they needed to do better with those set pieces. And we talked about last year how poor their marking was defensively on set pieces. Um, statistically, they've been better at it this year. Uh, this game certainly didn't look like it. Um, but to me, the, the big discrepancy in this game as far as chances was, you know, the crew did a lot with their set pieces and the Revolution really didn't do enough. And the Revolution had more chances on set pieces. They just didn't turn them into, you know, actually chances on goal. Yep, I totally agree with you. I mean, uh, that's a long-standing issue with the Revolution, that they're not great defending set pieces, they're not great scoring set pieces, um, and, you know, it's, it's Alexi Lawless. You know, Alexi Lawless always talking about set pieces, set pieces, set pieces. Those are the opportunities for you to to actually take something from the training pitch and say, this is what we're going to do. Like, we're going to practice these runs, we're going to practice who takes the kicks. Uh, so those are really the opportunities that you can most control in a game and uh for years the revolution haven't really been good at them yeah and, and the revolution too had you know to be fair you know Friedel was crediting their effort and they the revolution had a lot of possession in the final third um they had 165 passes in the final third compared to 69 for the crew um and you know they just didn't do enough to create chances out of that and that goes back to i think what i was saying earlier um you know if you have a guy like christian Pania who can create chances when you're in possession in the final third um, you know, that opens up a lot more opportunities for you. I just don't think Jones is, is that guy. And that was, you know, part of the revolution's problem. Um, and to be fair, it's been part of the revolution's problem even when Pania has been on the pitch this year. Um, you know, what do you think the revolution needs to do to kind of turn those, those possessions in the final third into actual chances? Because it still seems like this team can only create chances when it's like, you know, fast break counterattack. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think that uh, having heel further back does help because, like I said, he can see the seams a little bit better. And when he's further back, he's able to have more time and space on the ball because um, he just pops up. You know, all of a sudden he pops up, gets the ball on his foot, and he knows where his next play is. And I think there's too many players in the revolution that don't always know what their next play is. Um, a, a few weeks ago, I talked about how they were – you know, they were playing and when they got to the final third, it just felt like players were almost running into each other or they were making the same runs. And it just, it didn't seem like there was that knowledge of what was going to happen next. I think back a few weeks ago, um, you think about the Portland Timbers who have not been good this year, but they had that really great goal where they connected pass after pass after pass after pass. And then it ends up in the back of the net. The revs aren't moving the ball fast enough. They aren't finding their angles fast enough. Um, and it just seems like there's like no clear idea 100% of what to do in that final third. So they got to have to have that 
mentality. Like, what are we going to do? Who's going to open up where? Where is our position going to be? Is one player going to drop? One player going to go high? Are we going to use our outside mids to, to get wide? Or do we want them to tuck in and then have our fullbacks go? They have to really figure out, like, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to practice it. Here's how it's going like, to translate to the game. And I think we've seen, you know, different – Earlier in the year, we definitely saw the fullbacks get high and wide um, and try to create opportunities that way. But to me, that's kind of a detriment to what you have with, you know, Pania. Like, Pania, you want high and wide. You want in those types of spaces. So then we start seeing Casillo cut in a little bit more, which, you know, he did fine. He had some opportunities that way. But he's also a player that likes to get wide and have crosses. So you got to figure out how you can kind of fit all these pieces together and how it's going to work as a system and then figure out what your runs are going to be on a given day. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. And, and with that, I think we can jump into some listener questions. Um, we got eight of them from James Downing. I think we already touched on some of those. <laughs> so we'll, we'll skip over some of those. He asked about the set piece and whether they could have defended it better. I think we both agree they could have defended it better, despite it being a great ball. Um, his, his other question was about Pania. Um, and he asked, you know, familiar lack of ideas in the offensive third, as we just talked about. Uh, was Pania only good last year due to the early success of the high press? Um, what do you think about that? I think that the high press definitely suited him. I mean, think about how many times he that someone would get the ball, they moved it to Fagundes, Fagundes moved it to uh, Pania, Pania like sprinted in on net, finished the opportunity. But I also think that you, you see the quality of Pania. Like he can do the step overs. He can go one-on-one with a player. Um, he can like find that space and like dribble into the field. So he's a quality player. You just got to figure out how you want to use him and how you can get the best out of him. And again, you, you got to get that effort piece too. Like he has to buy into the system and make sure that he's going to do uh, things on both sides of the ball. And if you're n- not going to have him, like if he's, if, if he's not doing that for whatever reason, whether he's uncomfortable, he's not able, but effort, like his energy level's not there um, or his fitness level's not there. Can you adjust the system to get the most out of him? Cause I think that you need to have him on the field. I mean, Go again, go back to every game and you see that he's creating opportunities. Even on his worst games, he's the you know, the, the one like he's a player getting a shot off. He's the player that's like sneaking in, then then like I, I think a few games back where he came towards the center of the field and he was the one that was like pushing into that space and eventually gets the ball over to heel. Heel has a shot that's saved, and then Fagunas has a shot that's saved. I mean, that was created by Christian Pinilla. So even though that wasn't a great game, he created that play. Uh, early in the season, again, there's another like slow, bad energy. Didn't necessarily push forward the way you want, but he, you know, combines on that left side and ends up going towards net and creating one of the the, the game's best opportunities. So uh, you just gotta figure out how you can use him because he is a weapon. Um, and, and when he's on the field, the revs are more dynamic. The revs are more dangerous. They're not as stagnant as um, when he's not on the field. Yeah, I'm I'm with you 100. percent So I'm not going to be too repetitive, but I, you know, I, I agree with you that Pania is a player that you know can benefit from the press. He's great on the break like that. But you know, I think we saw in this game that when the Revolution did have possession, um, and and again, I think earlier in the season we maybe saw the opposite where he wasn't quick enough when the Revolution were in possession in the final third, and you know that was a bit of a problem for the Revolution. But I thought in this game was you know one of his better performances of the season, albeit only for 30 minutes. Um, and you know, even when they were down, I mean, I think he earned himself more playing time, and I think his his talent is is too good. Uh, to not just be, you know, to not just be a guy that can only work in the press. Um, so, so James's next question was: Does Agudelo really still think he's going to Europe? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I think the fact that he came back to the Revolution was a sign that, that the offers were, that were out there weren't great. I'm sure there were offers. I mean, you can always kind of find a, a league where that's going to sign a young, uh, talented. Uh, and he is talented. There's no question that he is talented. But a young, talented player that plays on the U.S. national team, um, you know, honestly, it probably wasn't that good financially. Maybe the location wasn't good. You got to remember, too, that he has a kid. So does he really want to relocate his family? Um, I mean, I think that any soccer player, as long as they're playing, has dreams of Europe, has dreams of playing at the higher le- highest level. So I highly doubt uh, – you know, the, the, he, he's he's saying that they'll, he'll never go there. I'm sure he still has those dreams. But I just I just don't see it. I just don't see him going uh, anywhere uh, besides somewhere in MLS. Um, and he really needs to start kind of stepping it up, putting the ball in the back of the net if he wants to keep prolonging his career and end up having that, that you know, long, long career that uh, a lot of players have. Yeah, and um, the next question, I agree with you on all, on all of that. I don't think 
No, I don't think Aguadelo is anywhere near going back to a good team in Europe right now. He needs to prove himself with a revolution and start scoring goals before it, you, know, you can even have that conversation. Um, his next question was about Mancien and, and whether or not it was a result of Friedel's tactics, the fouls he's committed, or, or if he just stinks. I think we talked about it being a little bit of you know the tactics and also um, you know lack of intelligence on some of those, on those some of those plays. Um, he asked about Friedel's not shaking Higuain's hand post match. I think it was actually Marcelo Nevlev who didn't shake. Iguain's hand post match. What, what do you make out of that? Yeah, I'm not sure. I have no idea. Uh, that that's definitely something that's happening that we haven't seen. I mean, uh, it's hard for us not having been there, not having been on the bench to 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 see the interactions to really even guess what that is. But it's definitely worth uh, mentioning. There is a, a GIF out there on the uh, any revs hashtag. I believe uh, uh, JT. Uh, I can't remember the, the Twitter account that I, I retweeted it from, uh, but definitely go take a look at it. It reminds me, remember the old uh, heaps, you know, heaps standing at yeah, midfield waiting for someone. Yeah, the phantom <laughs> handshake. Um, so it's obviously not that, but, you know, it's it's always funny when you have that post-match drama. You think of Caleb Porter in a similar situation back in the day. Uh, it's always it's always fun to, to see those types of things. But, yeah, I, I can't really speculate to what was going on with that. Yeah, and, and we know Nevlev did a lot of coaching in you know Central and South America, so I, I don't know if there's any history there that um, we're not aware of, but just you know worth throwing that out there that you know it's possible there's some sort of history even before that because of you know his Central and South American ties and and anyway, and obviously being from Argentina and uh, playing the leagues down there, but I don't I don't I don't know what to make of it other than it's it's kind of bizarre, and I'm curious if anyone will ask him about it this week, but. Uh, it was it was weird to to see that on TV and yeah if you haven't seen it look for the gift because it's a a, a very odd one um, but it, it was Nevlev and not not Friedel as far as I could tell um, we already talked about Caicedo number two's first start um, so he James also wanted to ask about Diego we talked about that as well and, and but his question was what did Diego do <laughs> you know what what are your thoughts on what Diego did to you know not only get taken out of the starting lineup but kind of not be one of the first options off the bench um, especially because and it's worth noting again that Diego was the number Number ten last year for the Revolution, and Friedel really sang his praises for a lot of the season. You know what's different this year? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't look too much into you know Friedel praising certain players uh, at any given time. I mean, let's not forget that Zachary Harrova was supposed to be the backup to. Uh, uh, Diego Fagundes is the number 10. You know, he's saying that if he was going to put the number 10 in, it, it would have been uh, Zachary Haravo. Remember now, Zachary Haravo is down in Birmingham. Didn't really make many appearances last year. So, you know, there's definitely a situation where last year, uh, Friedel is going to support his players. He's going to f- support Fagundes, Haravo, whoever it might be. So you don't want to always look too much into those comments. To me, I think it's probably the idea that he – he doesn't put in that defensive tracking as much as he wants to see, and he's not really sure where else um, Diego is going to be used, especially if you're going to play with two strikers. Uh, is he going to be another striker that's up there? Maybe. Um, he's, he's not going to be a number – he's not going to be in the middle with, you know, Codwell and Heal are playing really well there, so those are going to be your two. So that puts him in a position where he's going to be out wide, and if he's going to be out wide, he has to really be tracking, be on both sides of the ball. Again, think about Teal Bunbury. Teal Bunbury goes up and down, up and down that flank all day long. You know, uh, Diego Fagundes isn't necessarily that player. So it goes back to me, like, who is Diego Fagundes right now? Like, what is his future going to be? You know, in the beginning of the year, there there was talk that he wanted to get out of his contract. He wanted to go somewhere else. Um, and there wasn't really any serious offers. But, like, where did that talk come from? And you kind of put it here and think about, did Diego think that this is going to be a difficult year for him, that he wasn't necessarily going to get the, the playing time that he wanted? And, and that was kind of hushed a little bit because he did have a really solid – preseason you know he was scoring goals he looked af- active he was combining with college heel but then you find themselves in a situation where uh this is a big game you need a goal they don't go with him uh so you're kind of interested to see like what his future holds you look at someone like you know Callan Rowe Callan Rowe ends up being traded this year he goes to Sporting KC happier uh for sure but he's not necessarily always a, a weekend weekend out starter over there so you wonder what's Diego's value around the league what's his next steps i'm thinking a little bit about that like is diego a starter on another mls team or does he find himself a little bit in that row spot where solid player gonna get uh game minutes he's gonna get games where he starts but is he a full-time starter around the league what what do you think of that you know that's a great question and as long as heels the number 10 i think you know fagunas is best spot on the field other than that is is on the left 
Um, he looks good cutting in from the left wing and, and, and having chances that way. You know, I think he's a really good player. I think he's a really good bargain. Um, but you look at the revolution right now. He's not going to start over heel. Um, Pania's not even starting. I think that's a little bit crazy, and Pania should be starting, and I think he will be um, at some point this season. Um, but if Pania's starting on the left, which is Pania's best position, I would say, from what we've seen, um, you know, Fagundes, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure he's he's that great on the right. We, we saw a little bit of it this year, and it you know didn't look great. Um, you know, the one thing I will say you mentioned is tracking back. I think that's less of an issue um, when it's Farrell at right back, if, if Fagundes is on the right, than it is when Baez at right back. Um, but it's, you know, still an issue for what Brad Friel wants to do. To me, a, a guy with the talent of Diego Fagundes um, should be able to start somewhere in this league. You know, if he's not a great fit for Friedel's system, maybe that's not here. Um, but I, I still think he's a very talented player. I already had, you know, nine or 10 goals last season and nine or 10 assists. And um, he's been consistently, you know, one of the top creators in MLS. Uh, last year, you know, it was top seven, I believe, in, in chances created. So it's, it's tough to have a guy with that kind of talent who, you know, isn't even getting minutes off the bench. Um, and I do think there's other teams in MLS that would be interested in him, particularly for the, the the low salary that he's at for someone that creates as many chances as he as he does. And what he's, he's still only 24, right? So it's it's crazy to think he's still that young with how many minutes he's played over his MLS career. Um, you know, I think there's a home for him somewhere, but maybe it's just not in Friedel's system, which is surprising because last year at the beginning of the season he was just so good um, in Friedel's system at the start of the year as, at that number ten role, and then you know tapered off a bit towards the end of the season, kind of wasn't an everyday starter at that point. But but yeah, no, it's 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 there's a lot of questions around Diego Fagundes' future. Um, I believe they have another option here on him next year. Um, you know, if an offer comes in on this off season, I think he's now all of a sudden a lot more expendable uh, than we thought he was, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I do think that he he's valuable somewhere, like whether it's somewhere in MLS or he's somewhere, um, you know, wherever he goes, he's going to draw some interest, especially for his age, especially because of his salary. Um, but, you know, if this ends up being his role where he just uh, starts every now and then, maybe doesn't even play in a game, that's a really difficult year for a player. Um, that, that's tough for your mentality. That's tough for your, you know, your value a lot around the league or um, in a different league. Uh, so, I mean, again, we saw that with Roe, that Roe spent a whole year basically kind of wasted in revolution in New England. Uh, and that was really tough for him. And you got to imagine it's going to be tough for, for Fagunas if that ends up being the case. That said, who knows? I mean, the season's still young. Um, he's, like you said, very talented. He's, he scored a lot of goals last year, had has assists last year. Um, there's still time for him to, to get into the system. But it's concerning that this is the guy that's been the face of your club for so long, and he doesn't even come in during this game. Yeah, especially, you know, like I said, late in the game when they were looking for a goal. Um, so we also got three questions from Barbara S. The first one was, should Waylon Francis have received a yellow card for all of his fouls? I mean, I would say yes, but I also don't think that really impacted the game. What were, what were your thoughts on that? I think the Revolution players were frustrated at times that he didn't see yellow, too. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting because I watched uh, Waylon Francis a little bit because he's a guy that I said last year the Revolution should have gone after. Um, you know, pretty low salary, wasn't a player that – that was getting a lot of minutes and the Revs had needed a left back for quite a while. So whether he's your starter or he's a depth piece at left back, I thought they should have gone after him. I thought he was okay. I mean, I, I think that, you know, he's, he's clumsy at times, over aggressive at times. He's not as sharp as you'd, you'd want uh, at times, but he can be serviceable and do the job. Uh, should he have got a yellow card? Yeah, probably. I mean, there, there was enough times where, where he had made fouls that you could give him a, a persistent infringement card. Um, yeah, it was interesting to watch him because he's a guy last year that I thought the Revolution should have picked up. That wouldn't hurt to have him on the roster. No, I, I was with you on that. He was one of the guys that I looked at when the Revolution needed a left back as someone that was available on the cheap. Um, and I think he you know, went to Seattle for 50000 in allocation money and then went back to Columbus for 50000 in allocation money. So, um, you know, he, he was a guy that could have been had on the cheap. And I, I do think he's you know a serviceable left back at MLS. Um, so Barbara's next question was, do you think the players communicate enough? And she added that at the home games, they're close enough to hear the chatter, but can only hear other teams. Um, you know, it, it's difficult from our vantage point and, and the press box sometimes to tell how much the teams are chatting. Um, my hunch and instinct from, from watching the team is that maybe they don't chat enough this year. Um, and I think that's, you know, someone on Mancien to be the leader back there as the captain to, to get them talking more. Um, but it, it's hard for me to say for certain from, you know, from our vantage point, even watching on TV, whether or not they, they talk enough. Do you have any any thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. It's hard to, to know because you can't hear, obviously can't hear that well on the TV broadcast. And when we're at games, we're usually up in the press box. So you can't really hear those types of things. I will say the last two weeks, the, the effort and commitment have been there. I felt like the players 
when it came to the press, knew what they were doing. Maybe not as much when they when they had the ball and they're trying to penetrate. They're trying to get into, you know, create those scoring opportunities. Um, but I thought, like, in that sense, um, you especially see Scott Caldwell. I see Scott Caldwell in the middle really, like, pointing, saying, like, you go here, you go there. I mean, that's a guy, honestly, probably should be wearing the captain's armband. You know, a local product, a guy who, no matter who you bring in, he finds a way into the starting lineup or at least to be a solid contributor. A guy who just signed a contract. Um, you see him organize. You see him, like, you know, make things happen. Um, Mancianna, I'm sure he is. I mean, that he's organizing because he is the captain. I can't think of any particular moments where I've seen that, but I can't, can't imagine Frito putting the armband on, on a guy with like him and him just being absolutely completely silent um, as like a lead by example type. I'm sure he's back there organizing the back line, telling people where to go. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to, to fully comment to say if the communication levels aren't good enough for the revolution. So, so Barbara's last question was about Teal Bunbury, who, as you pointed out, um, has zero shots on goal this this year, despite eleven taking eleven shots. Um, so she says that we have been—I'm not sure who he is—but we have been saying Teal would be a great defensive mid. What do you think? A d- a defensive mid? Yeah, it's a bit out there. Uh, I do not expect Teal Bunbury to play defensive mid. Um, I'd be I'd be absolutely shocked if we saw him play defensive mid. I think that you, you, you play him up top because he's going to press high or he's going to try to sneak in behind and be that little, you know, little creative movement to try to create those opportunities. Or you play him on the wing because he has that defensive uh, nose for it, the, the, the defensive abilities that he wants to track up and down the field. I mean, those are the two places. I know that like, a lot of people back in the day talked about using him like a three-man back line and using him as a, an outside like winger, as a wing back. Yep. Um, I don't know. I mean, they – you could. I mean, I'm not against trying that because you did see him get very, very far back at times um, last night. So I think you're more likely to see him play wing back or maybe even goalkeeper before you saw him uh, play defensive midfielder. Yeah. So here's my thoughts on this. I think, you know, Teal, obviously, as we talked about, puts in a lot of effort on defense. Um, he's a very hard worker. Um you know, I can see why you might have that thought, but I don't think he has the positional awareness to to play that role. Um, certainly, and certainly at 29, I don't think he's gonna. I don't think it's a good time to move somebody to an unfamiliar role and try to develop it there. Um, but certainly, his defensive effort has been great. Um, so I, I I mostly agree with what you're saying there. I think in an ideal world, Teal is kind of your change of pace striker off the bench, or maybe your change of pace winger off the bench. Um, but right now, for you know the Revolution's depth, I think he you know he's probably your your best right winger, um, unless you know Fagundes can somehow figure out how to play over there and, and, and get that done. But so far, I don't think that's been the solution. So um, I don't think we're going to see him moving from his current roles. Um, and I, I certainly don't think we're going to see him at defensive midfield. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and just to try to jump in there, what, one other thing, and I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on this idea of like him playing defensive midfielder, but I think that he needs space in front of him to do well. Like He's not someone who, who necessarily connects passes in tight area very well. He's not someone who necessarily dribbles at players very well. Um, you know, there's often criticism about his touch, even though he had that really nice touch earlier this season. So for me, you need space. And if you're if you're Teal Bumbery, that space is going to happen either up top or on the outside wings. So I think that that's the, the best place for him. So, so two final questions. <laughs> this first one comes from uh, from Greg Johnstone, who could not join us on the podcast this week. He's down in uh, D.C. enjoying himself this weekend. Um, he, he raised this question. I think it might have been when you were on the podcast before about over under for Caicedo scoring five goals this season. I think back then we we all thought probably over. Um, what are you thinking now? Yeah, I mean, he's the genius that said that, that uh, he was taking the under in that situation. I will say this. I can't remember exactly what I said, but I think one of the things I said was that it would be a disaster if he didn't score more than five goals. It'd be a really good indicator that the revolution scouting isn't good enough and that probably the revolution attack isn't good enough. I mean, remember, this this player is a TAM player. This is a big signing that came in uh, during the offseason. And there is actually, and I know it's just a, it's all about the financial part of it, but like when they first announced him, they're like, hey, he's either going to be TAM or a DP. So that kind of indicates that he's making a pretty decent salary. Um, that they might be, you know, paying down. So imagine if, if you announce him as a DP striker, that this guy was a DP striker. Again, I know it means different things, and it doesn't have to be a Zlatan-type uh, player to be a DP, but that's a lot of money to spend on a guy, especially after spending a lot of money on Gabriel Somi or Wilfred Zahibo or guys that, I mean, even, you know, Luis Crusado isn't starting right now, and, and he's a, you know, a TAM player. 
Uh, Pania is not starting right now. He's he's a tan player. So you really got to think about how well they're managing the roster and how well they're spending their money. Um, so to to me, the beginning of the year, you have to take the over on five goals, even though he didn't score in preseason, even though he didn't look good. You think that he's going to get it. You would think they'd give him plenty of opportunities to impress, given how much money they they sank into him, his contract. Uh, I imagine it's more than a one year contract. I mean that you you bring this guy in, you probably give him you know two guaranteed years, like we saw with Somi, like we saw with Zahibo. Um, so, I mean, maybe maybe he starts to get things going. Maybe he starts netting goals. But I, I still stand by the idea that it'd be disastrous if he gets less than five goals this year. Yeah, I agree with you, and I, I take this tweet from Greg as a bit of a brag from him to, to say he was right after all with that prediction. And I actually, I'm going to go with the under now. I, I, I agree that it's a complete disaster if he does finish with less than five goals. But um, yes, it's still early, and yes, there's still plenty of time for him to turn things around. But just based on what I've seen, I'm, I'm going with the under at this point. <laughs> and uh, with that, the, the last question we got this week comes from AnyRevs UK who said even with the DP signing that is supposedly coming in June, can the Revs still make the playoffs? And I think it would be July, right, if they were to sign a DP, unless it came in, you know, before the, the May when before the window closed in May, I think it would have to be July. Um, but, you know, essentially from this, is, is the DP signing too late for the Revolution to, to make the playoffs, I think is what's being asked here. Yeah, for me, I have a hard time pinpointing one position that if they were to upgrade that position, they're automatically... Uh, a, a contender you know like oftentimes if you're thinking about mid-season signing you're thinking about okay one player to put us over the top i mean think about um ladero you know way back when he signed and, and i was after they fired siggy schmidt he came in and he was that one piece they needed that one creative pace that put everything together i mean you have strikers not putting shots on goal so do you want a player there yeah, you could put someone there. Um, or do you want another player to be in the midfield so that maybe you have like a defensive midfielder to play along Scott Caldwell or maybe uh, to in, in place of Scott Caldwell and then you could play uh, Carlos Heal a little bit differently. I mean, you could do that. Uh, you probably need someone on the right wing opposite of Pania if Pania ends up you know, being that guy um, who, who he should be, playing that player that he should be and being that creative force. But none of those – None of those situations makes me say, okay, okay, I'll recognize that, yes, the rest would probably be better if they brought someone like that in, like a, a, an elite player similar to a heel or similar to a, a Pania last year. But I don't think that puts them immediately in that contendership because uh, I think that a lot of issues that the Revs have are, are tactics, you know, that, that you know, are they doing the press or not? Are they going to be more possession-oriented? If they're going to be more possession-oriented, are they able to, to make the right runs to open up gaps and to create opportunities I just think there's too many questions when it comes to tactics to say that, okay, once we get this one piece, everything's better, everything gets fixed. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you, and I think it does come down to tactics. And and for me, you know, there is still a lot of offensive talent on this team. It just hasn't shown an ability to work together. Um, and if there was a way for Brad Friedel to, to figure it out and find tactics where Carles Heel, Christian Pena, and Edgar Castillo, you know, three of the you know, veteran talented guys, you know, Castillo, obviously left back, but a guy that provides a lot offensively. If, if Brad Friedel could find a way to get all those guys on the field at the same time, and effective and be very effective together because we haven't seen it yet. I think we've seen Castillo and Pena kind of get in each other's way um, and it just hasn't worked out. But if, if he could find a way to get those three players working effectively on the pitch at the same time, um, I do think the revolution could could potentially hang around long enough to and to be in the playoff picture um, and then sign that DP that would you know get him over the top. Um, but there's been nothing yet to indicate that Friel can find the tactics that do that. So, you know, I'm with you and I, I don't think the revolution will be um, in a position to, to really make a playoff push if they don't sign this DP until July, um, unless something significant changes in the tactics. And, and I don't, you know, I haven't seen enough to suggest that it will. Um, and, and, and I will say this too. I mean, so many teams make the playoffs that it's totally understandable that they could make this, you know, player, the signing, and it gets them just over that line. Yep. I just, that to me, when I think of MLS playoffs, I don't think about the playing game at this point. Like that's just not that high of a bar. I think about, okay, like they're legitimate contenders to do something, um, during the postseason. And we look at the, especially now, I mean, MLS is so wacky. You got like Atlanta United, absolutely, you know, down in the bottom of the, the MLS standings. Who would have thought about that? Uh, you know, you have NYCFC not really putting things together. So, I mean, anything could happen. You could see them sneak into the playoffs. 
but I, I just don't expect them to be a contender. And I have more faith that, you know, Atlanta United will figure things out, whether it's, you know, firing Frank DeBoer and, and, or, you know, bringing in more players, um, you know, NYCFC, uh, same thing. I kind of have more faith that they'll kind of get things together. New York Red Bulls, um, NYCFC, I don't know. I, I find them probably in a similar situation. Like they're they're kind of lost right now with their with their team and their coach and their roster. So I'm not have as much confidence in them. But I feel like their ownership groups have shown commitment to to get things right and to make those changes. And I just don't have that same confidence right now. Either whether it's the coaching tactics or it's the ownership group to kind of get things right for the revolution. I mean, and, and why should you? <laughs> but but on that note, I do want to talk about the, the upcoming game quickly. But before we do, I just wanted to touch on and Carly's heels comments this week um, on Revolution Soccer. That was you know, a good article about him and how he's happy here. Um, and, and one thing he said is that the truth is that he really likes the atmospheres and the passion for soccer and um, MLS. There are differences with all the teams, all the fields. It's been really interesting. Um, so that was a, a, a good quote from Heel. Um, but my question is, is that just him like, trying to say the right thing? Or um, is there truth to the matter? Because there are a lot of great atmospheres and fields in MLS. But, you know, his road trips have been to, to Dallas, which I don't think has a great atmosphere right now. Um, and to Toronto, which, you know, maybe a little bit better, but not the best atmosphere at this point in time, I'd say. And, of course, you know, three games at Gillette where the attendance has been uh, pretty poor. And, you know, the Columbus game hadn't happened when he made these comments yet. What do you make of those comments from Heel, you know, saying the right things? Or do you do you buy and do that? That's how he feels about the, the league so far, given that he hasn't played in places like Seattle, Portland, Atlanta, where, you know, that statement really rings true. Yeah, I saying the right things. I mean, that's it's it's like when I ask after a game, like, what do you think of the fans at Gillette Stadium? And the, the players are going to say it's amazing. We love playing in front of these guys. And the players, uh, the, fa- the fans love hearing the, the players say that. I mean, when you ask a question like that, what do you expect the player to, the player to say? Yeah. That said, I do like I do like a little honesty from players sometimes. I mean, we saw Felipe Martins um, last night talk about, you know, why are, why are the fans cheering for uh, Zlatan, right? That's who it was. Yeah, 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 that's exactly. Yeah, right. yeah, he was like, they should be cheering for us. Like, this is this is the way it should be. Um, so I don't know. It would be it would be kind of cool for someone to step up and be like, you know, I've seen some great atmosphere, and I almost also put this into you know Chicago. The news about Chicago potentially rebranding and moving their stadium, and you know, if someone were to step up and say, I see a lot of potential here in New England. That if we get that that Boston stadium, we're going to be the best you know franchise in in MLS, which could end up being pretty true. We could get like a really good situation once we move to, if we, uh, the team ever moves to uh, Boston. And I think that would have been a more honest comment to say like, there's a lot of potential here. Cause I do think the supporter groups uh, do a great job for the revolution. I mean, they show up, they try to be as loud as possible, but it's tough to, to make it to uh, Gillette stadium. And I know that, you know, I've been to um, Orlando city games. I, I went to the LAFC game last summer, LAFC versus LA galaxy. And this, those atmospheres are, are adrenaline rush. It's just, it's addicting. It's an amazing atmosphere. So there are really great atmospheres around the league. I don't think Heel has seen the best of the league so far, unless he's talking about what he saw on television. Um, and you know, I think that sometimes you want a little bit of honesty. And, and if you would be like, I love the fans here. They're great. They're committed. They're doing all the right things. But I see potential in how how we can build this brand in, in Boston. I would have like you know applauded in that situation and been like, you know what? I love the honesty. Appreciate what you're saying. Uh, and it kind of puts a little pressure on the team. But of course, a player's probably not going to say that. You know, it's not a likely thing to to say, especially if you're a new player. Especially after five games. <laughs> but yeah. I, no, I I'm with you, and I I had the you know, fortune of going to Portland last year for. Uh, Portland Seattle game and just the atmosphere there was incredible so there are a lot of great atmospheres in MLS um, but I think honestly Heel hasn't experienced one, one of those yet um, so yeah I think it's more of a lip service of, of saying the right things at this point um, and you know with that before we wrap things up the you mentioned Atlanta and the struggles they're having they're next in the revolution schedule a home game for the revolution um, and you know as bad as Atlanta's been they've had two weeks off this is their bye week um, so they get two weeks to prepare for the revolution in that game. Uh, what do you expect, and, and what happens if, uh, if if De La Mea is still unavailable to play, and obviously Mancian is suspended? Yeah, I mean that's the big question right there. Um, if De La Mea is obviously ready to go, you put him in there, and I actually like to see a De La Mea Anibaba back line uh, to see how that performs like versus Mancian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Mancian has been a hit, hit or miss and, and overall underwhelming. Again, there's been some decent tackles at times, but the the 
mental mistakes are what's what's causing the big issues that are leading to goals. So it, it probably would be nice to see someone else back there. I, I'm less curious to see what Farrell and Ani Baba looks like. I mean, we saw Farrell as a center back, and it just it didn't work. And I think that you know it makes us realize more and more that he is a right back. And I think he does a really nice job at right back. I, he's solid enough. Um, similar to you know some other players around the league where he's not necessarily an all-star, but he's safe and he's he knows his role and he's pretty reliable back there. Um, and to have him back over by, I think, was a big upgrade. So personally, I'd, I'd like to see him remain at right back. I think if he goes in the central center, uh, it'd be I'm curious to see do we see Somi at left back and move right uh, by to right back? My guess is no, we won't see that. We'll see by stay at left back. Or Castillo, we could see Castillo come back. We'll see what happens with his health. Yeah, we don't know um, what his injury is, do we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Jeff Lemieux did tweet out there was a knee injury for uh, Delamea, which could be serious. You know, knees, it's, it's got to be a difficult thing. Um, we have no idea what the time frame is. We'll probably find out Tuesday during the open media availability. Uh, Castillo, though, Jeff Lemieux did not tweet anything out. So we have no idea what the extent of his injury is. My guess is that if Castillo is out and uh, – Delamea is out. We see a back actually, line. actually now now that I say that, I see a second tweet where he mentions Castillo had a calf injury. So who, oh, knows, okay. who knows what that could mean? Yeah, so we'll see. I mean, if 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 Castillo if Delamea is out, we'll probably see and and, and Castillo is healthy. We'll see Castillo, uh, Alibaba, Farrell, and the right back will probably be Brandon By. If both players are out, I'm guessing we'll see Luis Casado. At right back. I just I find it hard to believe that after not even being in the 18 for so long that Somi could find his way back into the starting lineup. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. And with that, let's let's hear your prediction for the game. And because there's some uncertainty, I'll give you two predictions. One if De La Maya plays and one if De La Maya does not play. Uh, let's say I'm going to say the optimistic uh, result is a 1-1 draw i'm gonna say the pessimistic result is a 2-0 loss even though atlanta has not been very good i just there's there's so much talent there and i'm not i don't have a lot of confidence in frank DeBoer, especially as he takes out you know michael parkhurst and you know jeff lorentowicz from the starting lineup i mean these guys are are you know new england favorites and they're guys that help get the team to the mls cup obviously they're aging but I, I think that he Frank DeBoer's got to figure out what he's doing with that team, and hope, I, my thought is that after two weeks, he's going to have it figured out against the Revolution. So I don't know, one-one draw or two-zero loss, something like that. Yeah, it's it's hard to say because Atlanta's just been really bad this year, um, but there's so much talent on that team, and you know I like you don't have faith in Frank DeBoer. You know he's he's coached at a lot of good teams, but it hasn't had that much success with those good teams, um, and you know what he's done to Atlanta has been pretty shocking. It's, you know, such a good roster and he's you know, tried to tinker with the tactics and done really poorly with that. Um, but, you know, the two weeks off, I think, came at the right time for them coming off of a, you know, two nothing road loss to Columbus. Um, it gave them a chance to regroup and kind of figure things out. Um, I, I don't know if they will figure things out or not. You know, if they figure things out um, and if, if and, and the worst case scenario, if they figure things out, and if De La May is out hurt and if Castillo is out hurt, um, you know, it could be a blowout for Atlanta. Um, but, you know, I'm going to be a little bit more optimistic than that and, and say that, you know, Atlanta maybe didn't figure things out. And, you know, if De La May is back, the Revolution can win this one two to one. If De La May is not back, um, I think it's going to be, like you said, a one one draw or, you know, a, a loss for the Revolution. Um, but you know, Atlanta is just a sleeping giant right now. There's, there's way too much talent on this team for them to be as bad as they have been and for them to be behind the revolution. Um, and admittedly they've played four games compared to the revolution playing six. Uh, so I do think these, these two weeks off, you know, would be good for them. They had a you know difficult start to the campaign with champions league matches that, you know, could have tired them out. Um, so this could very well be the game where they, they turn things around. Um, and with that, Seth, could you tell us, um, where people can, can find your writing and, and where they can find you on Twitter? Yeah, the, the BenMusket.com. So, uh, you know, your your commentaries, your uh, recaps, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, so check, check out my writing there. And on Twitter, I'm at SethMan31. Uh, let me know. Uh, follow me and, and join the conversation. And make sure you follow Revolution Recap on Twitter. And you can follow me at Sean L. Donahue. Uh, thanks again, Seth, for joining us week. And thanks again for everyone who sent in their questions. Um, we'll be back next week.